Welcome to the seventh instalment of our journey through the book of Jonah. If you've made it through all six so far to this one, you've probably got two things on your mind, or at least one of two things. The first is, can God really show me more of his character through this story? And the second one is, can God really expose any more flaws in my character through this story? And I'm happy to let you know that no matter which uh, side your thoughts fall on, the answer is yes. Um, we talked last week about how Jonah uh, obeyed God's commands finally after being spat out of the fish. And we sort of got the feeling there that Jonah had gone through enough so that God had got through to him to the point where he had totally adjusted his mindset. He was full of faith and he was going to do what God had asked him to do. And yet then we find that he goes to Nineveh and he actually does what God has commanded but he does the bare minimum necessary to actually not disobey God, but doesn't actually really fulfil the command that God has given him. And we talked about how as 21st century Christians, we too can live in a relationship with God with exactly the same mindset. And so the question I want to delve into this morning is why did Jonah engage in this bit of prophetic sabotage? And so this is actually really important because... Uh, as we will discover, Jonah had a very different view of God's judgment on the Ninevites than we might have, um, which often causes conflict in those of us who relate more easily to a New Testament God. And so before we start, let me just pray with you as we uh, bring the Word of God this morning. Lord, I thank you that our hearts are open, our ears are open, and that we are prepared to learn more about you, to learn more how to be in a good relationship with you, and to actually be humble enough to accept your instruction as it, as it applies to our own hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start at chapter 3, where Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. What does God say to Jonah? In verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. Now, is that what Jonah did? Does his eight-word message actually mirror what God has actually asked him to do? Well, let's find out. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, where it says, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. Well, it doesn't look like it, does it? He didn't exactly follow God's instructions. And so from the first words of Jonah, this is framed as a story that begins with God looking over his world and he sees the city of Nineveh as the cause of great injustice and oppression and he is seriously ticked off. So he sends a messenger. and That's what prophets are, messengers. And he sends this messenger to confront the wickedness of Nineveh and to preach against it. Now this is a side of God, his fiery wrath and his fierce anger that we struggle with in the Bible. The fact that God is angry at the action of human beings, that he's about to bring harsh judgment down on them, makes many of us uncomfortable. Jonah, however, is totally down with that. In fact, his refusal to obey God is actually based on the fact that he is almost certain that God will not bring judgment against the Ninevites. The Ninevites are certainly hopeful, though. I mean, look at what it says in verse 9 of chapter 3. It says, Who can tell? Perhaps even yet... God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. 
Now, I know a lot of us get excited about scriptures and we, we put things on magnets to put on the fridge, but I'm guessing verse 9 is not something that's going to make it as your favourite magnet on your fridge. I mean, that's a great idea about God that I want to read every day. No, I don't think that's fitting the bill. He's fiercely angry and I might perish. So I think in our culture especially, we wrestle with this language about God, his wrath, his anger and his judgment, and we get squeamish. And after we've read a few of those, we're like, oh, I think I need to read something in the New Testament now. And that's how we respond. We ignore it. And so we need to recognise that this passage is about God's judgment on human behaviour, declaring that it's wrong and that people need to repent and change their behaviour. And let me tell you, this is not a popular idea. And so there are many passages like this, especially in the Prophets that declare that God is a God who renders judgment on our behaviour. He is a God of judgment. And we struggle with this language about God because we hold another conviction, namely from Jesus and some really powerful passages in the New Testament that speak of a God of love. It says in 1 John, God is love. God loves the world. And so we struggle with how to put this together. And to be honest, what happens with most of us is that we just pick one and then we screen the other one out. And even for those of us who actually try to, to juggle them in some way, usually one trumps the other. God is a God of judgment, and eventually his love wins out in the end. And we, we don't really know how to put this whole idea of God's judgment together. And I think the biggest trap we fall into is to think that judgment and love are opposites of each other. We think that it's not a loving thing to judge, that we're taking down somebody else's behaviour. A loving God wouldn't do that, wouldn't render judgment like that. We somehow think that judgment and love don't belong together. But think that through for a second. What's underneath is this assumption that if God looks out on our world, and our world is, and you don't have to be religious at all to recognise this, our world is seriously messed up. And why is the world messed up? Because we're messed up. There are seven billion of us on this planet making seven billion small and large decisions every day that are completely self-centred. And so if God exists and he looks out on our world and all the horrible things we do and think about each other, large and small, and his response is, ah, those humans, you know, God love them, misguided bunch, but I really do love them, so I'll overlook all the bad things that they do. Is that a loving thing to do? Is that a loving God who simply overlooks the mess that we've made of his world and the way we vandalise people made in his image by how we treat them? Is that a loving thing to do? And I would argue that not only is it not loving, but it's the opposite of judgment is not love. The opposite of judgment is apathy and not caring how people behave and treat each other. Think of it this way. You're walking past the playground and you see a bunch of kids, probably about grade six, and they've surrounded this other little kid, probably grade two, and you can see him there. He's got his Spider-Man backpack on and they've stolen his lunch. And they're pushing him around and slapping him. They're calling him names and they're going to take all his stuff and leave him crying and bleeding on the playground. And you're the only adult. You look around and you're walking by on the footpath. If you say to yourself, ah, kids will be kids. They're misguided, but you know, they'll work it out. They're kids. And you just keep walking. Is that a loving or caring thing to do? Absolutely not. Definitely not. It's the apathetic thing to do. What is the loving thing to do? is to render judgment on that behaviour. These kids think that's a good thing to do when it's a wrong thing to do. It needs to be stopped and they need to be held accountable. 
That's the loving thing for you to do, to make a judgment. Because judgment is not the opposite of love. It's an expression of love. You're loving the victim, the poor kid in second grade. You're loving your neighbourhood by not allowing this to set a precedent for this kind of behaviour in the park. You're loving the kids themselves. They might be in grade six, they might know a bit more, but you're making a statement to them that this is not okay behaviour. They're going to ruin their life if they keep doing stuff like this to people. And so judgment is the loving thing to do. Can you see that? And so the world's not okay, and it's not okay because we're not okay. And what we're doing to each other is not okay, and that's a judgment. And for God to love the people made in his image to protect the goodness and the beauty of this world, if he does not render judgment, I would argue that he's not caring, he's not loving, he's apathetic, and he's not worthy of worship, in my opinion. And so love and judgment aren't opposites of each other. They're two sides of the same coin. They're in harmony with one another. Now here, of course, is where it gets tricky. Because most of us want a world where there is justice. And we want there to be a God who will hold human beings accountable for all of our decisions. If there's not a God of judgment, who's higher than any human to define what we do as good or evil, then I would argue there's no hope for our world. Because if that God doesn't exist, or it's some other God who doesn't care how we treat each other, then it doesn't matter how you behave. There's nobody you're accountable to except yourself and your culture. But do you really want to make yourself and your culture the one who defines good and evil? How's that gone for most of human history? You end up with things like the Assyrian Empire, skinning people alive and impaling them on poles. And so if you cherish the hope of the story of the scriptures, of a world made right, of a restored creation where all wrongs are made right, then you cherish the hope of a judgment of all that's been done wrong. You hope it will be dealt with and made right and evaluated and judged. But then flip it over. This is a, this is a big dilemma for us because if there's a God of judgment, there may be hope for the world, but there's no hope for you and me because you and I are notoriously two-faced and double-minded when it comes to justice. I mean, you only have to look at driving behaviour, right? You see people out on the road every day who make your blood boil because they do the wrong thing. But if you get pulled over for speeding, is it your fault? No, it's the fact that the government is revenue raising by pulling you over and that you weren't doing anything wrong and it was only 5Ks over the speed limit anyway. You argue yourself out of the fact that you do not think that you deserve judgment. Only the rest of the world does. And so what we've got to actually realise that if there is a God of judgment, we're not it. If there is a God who defines good and evil, then it means I don't get to do that in ways that excuse my misbehaviour. And you know that's the core issue. When you say you believe that it's good to forgive people and it's good to be generous, and meanwhile you spend all your money on yourself, you've already burned three relational bridges in your life because you refuse to forgive people. And when that gets exposed, you say, what? Don't judge me. That's not loving to judge. And it's like, which way do you want it? Do you want the world to be judged? Or are you prepared to be judged too? And so I think... The issue is just that we're not God. And when God renders a judgment on our behaviour, it exposes stuff inside of us. We don't like that. It challenges us. Things that we thought were totally fine and that we're good all of a sudden are declared not good. And it ticks us off. We do not like it when our values are called into question. 
God's judgment comes as very unwelcome to us. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. There are areas about Christianity that are difficult for me to accept God's judgment. That's why it's an act of belief or faith when I'm choosing to believe that God's judgment of what is good and not good is actually superior to my own. And so even though it doesn't always resonate with me to say that's not good, that's wrong, my faith and my trust is in someone above myself. Because what am I? I'm a two-faced car driver, that's what I am. So the question is, what does God do with his judgment? It's an expression of his love, but what's it for? Does God bring his judgment to smash us, to crush us? Is it to make us miserable, to wallow in the ashes of not knowing if God is going to forgive us because we're horrible people? Let's look at the goal of God's judgment. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. And this is the last verse in the chapter. God renders the judgment that their behaviour was not good. They repented, and when they repented, what did they find? We have a wonderful word to describe what's happening in verse 10, and it's the word grace. This is the goal of God's judgment. Out of his love, he renders a judgment on our behaviour so that we'll be like, "Uh uh-oh, okay, I've discovered this is not the right way to do things. I'm going to change the way I act. And the moment we do that, what do we find? We find grace. So God's not out to destroy us. He's out to show us that we're going the wrong way so that we can turn, find grace and new life. God's judgment is a good thing. It's an expression of his love and it's aimed at restoring people to relationship with himself. And so we end with this. Reading a story like Jonah and there's this, we've got this repentance this is a, and this is a beautiful world. It's how human beings get reborn and restored and renewed when we realise we're not God. Now next week, I want to talk about how long the Ninevites' repentance lasted. But be careful how you start to judge that statement. But right now, as we come to a close, I want us to start thinking about those three words, judgment, love, and grace, in light of what we've discovered about God's judgment in our lives. Because love cannot be effective without judgment. Without judgment, there can be no repentance. Without repentance, there is no grace. And without grace, we will never experience God's love.